1: Apply for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome
0: to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Jessica Bachman of the University of Washington. Today I will be speaking to Professor Rosen Jagalov about his book From Internationalism to Postcolonialism: Literature and Cinema Between the Second and Third Worlds, published by McGill-Queen's University Press in March 2020. Professor Jagalov is an assistant professor of Russian at New York University. His research interests broadly lie in global socialist cultures and media histories. He's also a member of the editorial collective at Left East, a platform of the East European Left. Rossen, welcome to New Books in History.
2: Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for inviting me.
1: I am very excited to discuss your book today. But before we jump into the book, it would be great if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about your personal and intellectual trajectory. I know that you have a doctorate in comparative literature from Yale University, Rosan, what brought you to this field, and what led you to the topics that you study?
2: Well, which is partly autobiographical. I, I come from Bulgaria, and and my biography is actually fairly standard for somebody uh, who came to the States. Uh, it goes through 1989, which uh, sent um, my family and many other. Uh, people in, in this part of the world on an economically downward trajectory, uh, and like quite a few of my classmates, I went abroad for my studies, in that case, you know, that was Williams College, where I was largely a science major, um, but got interested in, in Russian literature uh, in, in the second part of, uh, of my undergraduate, second half of my undergraduate degree, and uh, and then ended up going to Moscow in the early 2000s to really m- improve my background in the humanities before applying for a PhD, uh, PhD in comparative literature in the States. Uh, in Moscow in the early 2000s, I was uh, at a university called the Russian State University of the Humanities, uh, which was a fantastic university, and where I inherited this very Western-centric anti-Soviet narrative of uh, Russian literature and culture and and history, which I've been trying to emancipate myself from ever since. Um, And then, you know, came the PhD uh, at Yale, and the project, the idea for this book really originated in in the archival work uh, I did during, during my dissertation research. So, I just kept coming across uh, names in the documents of the Soviet Writers' Union that occupied an, an entirely different section of my brain, you know, that of post colonial literature. Names like uh, Simben Usman, Gugi uh, and, uh, and then uh, something very similar happened uh, with the archive of the Soviet Filmmakers' Union. And it was only subsequently that. I was able to articulate the the stakes of this this project largely in conversation with Soviet historians and scholars of the global South like like you.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for that background. So this book, which builds on this intellectual trajectory um, that you just described from your bachelor's in the United States, to your work in Moscow, and then back to the United States, um, you know your research makes a number of very important contributions to the fields of Soviet history, global Cold War history, and also post-colonial studies. But above all, it really reveals a close alignment that existed between Soviet and post-colonial cultural formations, and in particular in the spheres of literature and film, which you just mentioned. Why has the history of this cultural alignment remained buried for so long? And why is it important for you to reconstruct it? Well, so
2: in Soviet, in Soviet bloc historiography, 1990 figures as this uh, moment of openness as the incorporation of the Soviet bloc's uh, culture society uh, into, into world culture. Uh, but and, uh, symbolically figured this uh, um, breaking of the barriers, be they Berlin walls or cultural uh, obstacles that the Soviet state lay on on this path. But seeing from the point of view of uh, uh, the global South, uh, this really amounts to a moment of closure, uh, a moment when all the networks, Connecting the Soviet bloc to the African and Asian and Latin American cultures are broken down. Uh, and in a sense, a moment of provincialization, because uh, what uh, really used to be a, a culture that, meaning Soviet culture that that uh, Kept visible liter- the literatures of India, of Africa, uh, the films of Latin America and to its citizens. Uh, suddenly, suddenly cut them off, uh, and so, uh, so you know, I've been trying, you know, along with a number of other scholars, to erase <laughs> all these connections that uh, l- really disappeared over the 90s and 2000s. Um, and uh, and so you know it's been quite nice to to be part of a whole enterprise with with a number of uh, historians of Soviet or Soviet bloc and third world engagements and uh, and see how they revise not only traditional Soviet bloc historiography but also our understanding uh, of uh, the third world project. Which uh, you know we saw too often seem purely in the relation, the one single relation of the West to, uh, to the to the, of the global North to the global South of West to East.
1: Right. I mean, this is um, this revision that's going on now is is quite exciting, and um, you know, your your work is really leading the way. I see it. Um, in order, so that we can see that even though there were many writers, cinematographers, artists who came from politically non-aligned nations, right, declared a political non-alignment, there was nevertheless still very, very close cultural connections. Um, we can't always um, confuse political non-alignment with cultural non-alignment, right? I believe that your book does a great job at, at revealing this. Um, you know, you you just mentioned. Uh, the term third world, and it, it plays an important role in your in your book. It's a very critical term. And before we proceed, I think it's important to pause and think about how you use the term third world and also how you use the adjective third worldist, which you use often to describe the artists, filmmakers, writers, and so forth from um, the third world. And the reason I want to pause here. As you do in the book itself, is because when I use the term third world with many of my undergraduates, an awkward silence usually follows, right? It's very uncomfortable for undergraduates to hear the term third world because they've learned that it's not politically correct, right? Um, They have heard that the politically correct term is developing, as in developing countries rather than third world countries. And so they perceive it as a kind of slur. And then I usually have to pause and justify my use of the term to them. And I wanted to ask you what you mean by third world and third worldist when you use these terms in the book and why you prefer using these terms over, let's say, the, the term global south, which we often encounter now, or the term developing countries.
2: Yeah, that's a fantastic question, because in a sense, the term third world was delegit- delegitimized in scholarly use in the 90s post-colonial critics like Ella Schott, it criticized it for lumping together vastly different uh, societies and, and cultures, essentially the, the non-West. Uh, and, uh, and plus its main implication being one of backwardness, you know, it's in the third world country. Uh, and so it really fell in some scholarly obscurity and you, Vijay Prashad Revived it in in the mid 2000s in in his People's History of the Third World, where he uh, in two sentences, the opening sentences of his book, redefined it. The Third World is not a pro, is not a place. They read it is a project. Uh, so I use uh, Vijay Prashad sense of the world uh, of the world as uh, a political. The Third World is a political project. Uh, for emancipation an anti-colonial project that's not necessarily described by geography and doesn't uh, doesn't include the mechanical some of all things uh, African Asian Latin American uh, but uh, but it's uh, interesting that you know it's really certainly not a new new debate uh, it what word to use to describe the <laughs> uh, to describe these processes and the phenomena uh, taking place during the era of decolonization during the Cold War it was hotly debated in different societies in the Soviet case which I know best um, these countries were initially uh, defined as capitalist and backwards you know this was during the late Stalin era mm-hmm. where even Indian independence did not register as a significant event because that was, really um, some minor reconfiguration within the capitalist world, you know, within its backward, uh, uh, backward parts. And then during the Thorn stagnation era, a, a proliferation of different terms emerged, like developing non-capitalist, non-aligned, each with its specific in- emphasis and uh, specific optic. And uh, specifically on the uh, on the topic of the third vote it was the, the term was banned essentially by Boris Mariov, the then head of the international department of the Communist Party Central Committee because you know it implied that there existed some alternative to the communist second and the capitalist first world. you know what is this third thing you know there's only these two um,
1: Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the terms that are used in the archive, there are many of them. They all have very specific meanings, um, grounded in a specific historical moment. Um, but you know, going back to Vijay Prashad's work, I I also when I that's precisely what I I the kind of the the writing that I show my students when they stand kind of. Uh, uncomfortable um, when I use the term third world. I I also introduced them to his work and his uh, reclaiming of the term third world. Um, moving on, you know, you talked a little bit about how Cold War historiography was in the 1990s and why it's important to um, kind of revive these, the history of these cultural connections. You know, it's it's, we've had... Histories written in the past 15 years that have looked at the Cold War and superpower competition from this post the perspective of post colonial experience, right? Um, this kind of turn away from the 1990s scholar- or the 80s and 90s scholarship happened around the time Odd um, Arn Westad produced his uh, very well known work, The Global Cold War, in the mid 2000s. Um, probably this ter- so called turn would perhaps begin there. Um, And yet, even though we're now, uh, you know, 20 years, almost 20 years on from this, um, it's not uncommon for third world actors to be treated as objects or pawns of Soviet foreign policy in historical writing, right? So I wanted to ask you why you think that this objectification occurs so often, even after the global turn in the study of the Cold War. Is it a function of the kinds of archives that historians are using? Is it a function of frameworks? Is it a function of how the archive is read? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
2: So David Engerman has this very nice periodization of Western historiography of the Cold War, falling into four periods: Partisan historiography, then the archival turned then global Cold War, Then I forgot what the fourth is. So part of the problem you've identified is the continuation of the partisan tradition <laughs> in, in contemporary scholarship, uh, in, in which, of course, the, the Soviet side is the anti-hero. But, but also <laughs> the problem originates with the nature of the Soviet archive, uh, because on the one hand, it's an incredibly important and used archive for the studies of the global, global South, Uh, But uh, unfortunately, it is all too often read literally without Mm -hmm. understanding of the rules of the genre involved in generating all these documents. You know, because like any bureaucracy, Soviet cultural authorities were about control. I mean, that's uh, something quite obvious, but but, uh, (laughs) what control they did achieve uh, and uh, how... How much of it existed is really another, an entirely different question. And, and and to anybody who's written a grant proposal or a fellowship report, it's it's clear that uh, we're trying to magnify the um, our successes and the importance of what we are doing, and and uh, um, or the obstacles we've overcome. And, and this is really the logic of, of the report writers. Uh, we we re- as scholars uh, reading and and it's uh, and the only way to uh, really contextualize this uh, archival material is to uh, check it against uh, other types of, of sources like uh, the writings of, of uh, these African Asian Latin American writers filmmakers uh, their biographies uh. And ideally, I use oral interviews. And I really wish I could do more of this um, because at times, mine is a story that, <laughs> that is sometimes told by mid-level Soviet bureaucrats. Uh, and, uh, and this is why your work on progress publishers in India is so very rare because it, it is positioned at the same time in both uh, histories and cultures and, and relies heavily uh, on, uh, on oral histories in a way that so little of, of this global Cold War uh, scholarship on the Soviet side does.
1: Thank you. Well, thank you, Rosan. I mean, absolutely. This, this objectification often, you know, the, the Soviet archive, as you said, uh, the Soviet bureaucrats who were producing the documentation there were about control and about the perception of control and you have to take into consideration kind of this discursive world in which they were working um, and it's fascinating what you said about about grant writing. Um, I know a lot of times there are grants that people apply for scholars apply for in the United States that need to object uh, need to identify kind of the foreign policy implications for the research and in order to discuss those foreign policy implications scholars tend to amplify kind of these uh, the, the Soviet kind of the Soviet Union as an (laughs) anti-hero in order to get funding. So um, that's also an issue that I hadn't actually thought about until you mentioned it. Um, And as a follow-up to this question, I wanted to know how your approach, right, to reading the archive, to your approach to reading the Soviet archive on the Afro-Asian Writers Association founded in 1958 and also on another major Um, configuration, I would say, the Tashkent Film Festival. How how does your reading of these Soviet archives enable you to tell a different story about second and third world relations? And by second world, I mean the Soviet Union. First,
2: uh, the presence of these writers and filmmakers in the Soviet archive, I think, allows us to introduce an important correction uh, in the scholarship about these uh, writers and, and filmmakers of the, of the anti-colonial era. And that's, uh, the world they inhabited is, is simply much wider than, than that usually told, uh, which is, as I had mentioned, typically one of uh, an east-west axis Along which they must have been shuttling, uh, or uh, they they were involved in South-South, very South-South initiatives as well as um, in the in the story of, uh, of of state socialism and the Soviet Union in particular. Uh, and so, I'm aiming to introduce these dimensions of the of the Cold War and the. That, that some of that previous scholarship had flattened um, and the, and the Soviet uh, Soviet cultural bureaucracies were incredible generators of material <laughs> uh, material often that doesn't uh, exist in in the archives of the newly decolonized nations and and maybe again you are somebody who can speak to to the comparative uh, holdings of these archives and how they they complement each other, uh, but uh, the, the Soviet authorities were meticulous uh, record keepers. Every uh, Soviet writer who went abroad had to generate a report upon their return. Every uh, foreign writer who arrived in the Soviet Union similarly uh, got. Uh, Reports by by the hosts, uh, translators and interpreters also had to to produce reports. So so we have actually not a single monolithic Soviet writers, but uh, numerous uh, uh, numerous report writers uh, it, uh, who occupy uh, a different range of positions within within the Soviet cultural bureaucracies and who similarly have. Uh, different goals and intentions vis-a-vis the third world link. Uh, and so I've, I've been I was trying to to be a little sensitive to to this multi-positionality and uh, and uh, observe my characters from as many of these positions as I can, not simply the most obvious maybe highest decision making level, which is in a sense the most the most predictable.
1: I see. And, and you also, I mean, aside from um, from archival sources, which um, you have so many, um, you've uncovered so many new ones, um, you also, I believe, um, from what I read, uh, you're also using memoirs, right, produced uh, not in the Soviet Union, but um, published in different African and Asian countries.
2: Yes. Um, and, uh, and I also uh, made an effort to speak to... Uh, especially people from the uh, Institute of Oriental Studies in Moscow, uh, who were not not merely scholars uh, of uh, African-Asian literatures, They were also active participants in those uh, exchanges in the form of, of interpreters or consultants for the Writers' Union or... Uh, part-time workers at the at the radio Moscow, whose multiple national language uh, national language versions had m- abundant cultural programming, where many of these writers, who upon their arrival in Moscow, for example, were invited uh, to to present their latest works. Uh, so, um, but. Uh, Again, you know, one of the limitations of my work is that uh, it is still a little Soviet, uh, Soviet focused, and uh, I could never be quite an expert in the multiple uh, national literatures and cultures that that I'm evoking along the way.
1: Well, the the, the flip side, I mean, the you might see that perhaps as a limitation, but. You know what? One of the big contributions of your book is that it gives us a broad overview, right? It's not just focused on one um, national literature or culture, right? That that was in dialogue with with Soviet cultural authorities, right? You're you talk about so many different con- Latin America, all sorts of uh, Mexico, um, you know, India. Uh, all, I mean, so many different countries, and it's very rare that a book um, that a monograph is able to cover so many. Um, Uh, So many places, right? This this wide geographical range is one of the um, kind of the amazing things about this book. Um, I wanted to ask you, speaking of geography, um, one of the geographies that plays a very significant role in your narrative and your excavation of Soviet third world engagements in literature and film is Soviet Central Asia, right? You argue that individuals from republics such as Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan and to some extent the Caucasus region, you argue that they acted, people from these regions um, acted as mediators between the second and the third world. I would love it if you could tell us more about this mediating role that actors from these Soviet regions played. Why were they so integral to the way that the Soviet Union positioned itself vis-à-vis the Third World?
2: One of the most appealing aspects to the of the Soviet Union appealing to audiences from these three continents was uh, its apparent ability to solve the national, ethnic, or racial question, uh, and uh, and so. Tashkent really never failed to work on these audiences who were really impressed Uh, and in my book I specifically single out Tashkent, you know, which was really the showcase city for Soviet engagements uh, and uh, where um, delegations, political cultural from from these three continents were were very often taken Uh, and that role of uh, Tashkent and an Central Asia was initiated already in the 1930s when a number of African Americans, most of them communists, uh, some seeking to escape from Jim Crow and the Great Depression, really showed uh, uh, a great interest um, in, in the place. Hmm. Uh, there was uh, a co-host of African American uh, workers in Uzbekistan whom Langston Hughes, another visitor to the region visits in the early 30s so so it has uh, pre-war uh, pre-Second World War uh, origins but it was really the year the of decolonization that uh, brought this role to a new level and I want to emphasize that it's not really Moscow's assigning Uzbekistan with that specialization, but it was also very much the, the work of Uzbek political elites, especially Sharaf Rashidov. And uh, Masha Kirasirova and other scholars have recently worked uh, a lot on, on the role of Central Asians, uh, the, the internal East in, in providing the connection to the external
1: East hmm Right, right, absolutely. So, no, I, I mean, and you're really building on their work fabulously there. Um, and, um, you, know, I, you know, Central Asia, um, I, I really love what you said about how it wasn't just Moscow assigning uh, Uzbekistan this important role, right? It was Uzbek national elites who wanted Uzbekistan to play this mediating role. And I think that really comes out in your book. And another reason I'm so excited for your book, uh, Rosan, is for its contribution to, discussing, uh, to discussions about the making and working of the modern world literary system. Uh, about two decades ago, French literary critic uh, Pascal Casanova proposed the existence of, quote, a world republic of letters, right, an international literary system or a literary field. Um, And in this field, you know, major and minor literatures and languages from different nation states are fighting for prestige, right, is the term that she uses, an inclusion um, in a canon, right, a canon of world literature. But Casanova's World Republic of Letters was largely theorized in reference to the West. And as you note in your book, it really breaks down when we think about the Soviet Union's own project for world literature, and so in this book, you are riffing off Casanova when you speak of, quote, the Soviet Republic of Letters. And I would love it if you could tell us more about the Soviet Republic of Letters and how it operated and how it is different from the republic that Casanova theorized.
2: So Casanova's really is a fantastic book, book which reframed the way we work in comparative literature, obviously alongside other Theorists of world literature. Uh, And I'm very sympathetic to its project and its uh, emphasis in hierarchies, but uh, I'm critiquing those hierarchies, but it is flawed in a number of ways. Uh, One of which was the assumption that world literature functions like a Wallersteinian world system with uh, market competition, diffusion from west to east, and uh, and uh, circulation pretty much limited to these two that, uh, uh, that really explain the workings of world literature in her, her account. And, and to be fair, you know, much of world literature, especially what we see today, does work like that. But what I try to describe both in this book and elsewhere is a socialist republic of letters that relies on different mechanisms on a different logic. Uh, the literature is, in this system is not a commodity, but a s- s- source of uh, society and nation-building. And capital gives way to an overt logic of solidarity and, of course, interstate agreements uh, uh, through which uh, the Soviet Republic of Letters often operated vis-a-vis um, the Third World in particular. So... Uh, and, and, and that, that way of operating has created also a different way of conceptualization of world literature among Soviet literary scholars, uh, which a number of us are trying to uncover in an edited volume on Sovietist world literature that uh, Galin Tihanov and Lounsbury and I are right now in the process of preparing.
1: Oh, fabulous. That, I, I very much look forward to that volume. Um, I would love to get into some of the individual chapters within uh, your book, which runs from, kind of, it moves from the Soviet or the Socialist Republic of Letters to, I guess I wouldn't say a Republic of Film, you don't use that term, but uh, towards the 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 domain or the realm of film. Um, and so I guess beginning with chapter one, you trace the development of this Republic of Letters uh, between the Revolution, 1917, and World War II, um, but really the major focus is on the interwar period, uh, the 1920s and 30s. Why was this interwar period, Lenin's time, such a formative time for the development of the Republic, the Soviet Republic of Letters, or Soviet literary internationalism?
2: So the immediate period after the Bolshevik revolution the next few years uh, until the mid 1920s were in a sense the high point of soviet internationalism you know which was also connected at the time with hopes for revolutions in the east or west neither of them occurred uh, uh, and of course the civil war and the absolute devastation that accompanied weren't the the best conditions for launching uh, such uh, internationalist projects in the in the realm of culture. Um, so it's you know, and then as we know, came socialism in a, in a single uh, state. Uh, but it is ironic that uh, the lineaments of this project, the in literature at least, the international literature magazine, the international writers' congresses, massive translation projects, were truly launched only in the 1930s. At the time when the Soviet literary field itself was being cleared of the most interesting trends within it, namely the the avant-garde. So it's uh, really in the 1930s that, uh, and especially the uh, popular front era, that sees the uh, the apogee of this. Uh, Soviet Republic of, of Letters, which is uh, uh, on the way of the common anti-fascist struggle, is is being connected to uh, so many other uh, other national uh, leftist-rightist movements, uh, and and then comes a fairly you know it's it's a, a fairly well known story of Soviet internationalism that. Uh, Uh, that literature here reflects then come the fairly abrupt breaks of the late 30s initiated by the purges and the de facto destruction of the Compton in that period and then uh, the second world war during which obviously people had other concerns than uh, than then recreate those literary networks which were at any rate impossible in wartime conditions and then then comes only after Stalinism, uh, comes a full fledged revival of that uh, early interwar literary internationalism.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Right, right. So maybe just to jump on um, the, you know, the trajectory that you've just beautifully painted. So the story picks back up again with internationalism in the 1950s. Um, you know, party and state officials are trying to gain the friendship and the trust of the newly decolonizing and decolonized states across the world, especially in Africa and Asia. Um And, you know, one of the kind of manifestations of this new foreign policy priority is the Afro-Asian Writers Association. Um, And you reconstruct this history in chapter two of the book. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how and why the Afro-Asian Writers Association came into existence and perhaps how it was built upon um, some of the Uh, some of the projects that had begun, as you said, in the 1930s, um, projects of international world literature. Um, How did this Afro-Asian Writers Association uh, become, as you say in the book, the epicenter of the USSR's literary engagement with the Third World during the Cold War? So
2: if Soviet literary internationalism of the 1930s was a fairly universalistic one, uh, the Literary internationalisms that uh, the Soviet Union tried to create, or at least participating in the uh, stagnation and in the thorn stagnation eras, were, were really subject to this tripartite tri- division of the world into three. Into so so in the realm of literature, there was this coordinating council of the leaderships of the Writers Union. Uh, of the writers' unions that that was in charge of second world internationalism, there was the European Association of Culture that was essentially uh, the common space of Soviet and uh, and European literatures, and there was the Afro-Asian Writers Association that was specific to Soviet uh, third world engagements, but very importantly. Uh, and I want to emphasize this the Soviet Union did not create or initiate the Afro Asian Writers Association. Mm. Uh, it's uh, the Tashkent Congress where this association was, was uh, uh, created, uh, was inaugurated, uh, was a continuation of a conference of Asian writers organized in Delhi in 1956 uh, by. Uh, by Mook Rajanant with Jawaharlal uh, blessing, you know, and it is a very small periodizing detail, but uh, it does change the gene- genealogy uh, and makes clear that uh, actually anti-colonial forces were the <laughs> the first there. You know, the the Asian Writers' uh, Congress was was actually meant to to be the the equivalent of Bandung in the realm of of literature, and so. You know, when Slavists engage scholarship of the Global South, it is important not to overstate our case and not to attribute excessive agency to the Soviet Union, because um, much of that agency comes at the expense of third-worldist writers uh, third-worldist actors.
1: Thank you. That's a very, uh, very important point. Um, No, it's not not a minor periodizing detail at all. It's um. It's absolutely crucial to understand how these um, how the association um, functioned and why it became so important, right? Um, you know, and as you mentioned in the book, the Afro-Asian Writers Association also was not just a way for the Soviet Union to interact with the Third World and Third Worldist writers, but also a key kind of nodal point in the relationship between Third Worldist writers themselves, right? Um, can you talk about this... Second, this other—I guess—I guess I wouldn't say second function, but other function of of the association as a place where writers from Africa and Asia could meet with each other, uh, exchange ideas, um, and so forth. Right. Yes.
2: So, if if in the mind of Soviet organizers, uh, uh, you know, bilateral Soviet uh, uh, Soviet. African, for example, engagements or coming around uh, common Soviet-led platforms were were really primary goals. For many of the uh, writers from African and Asian countries, the primary benefit of attending the Congresses of the Afro-Asian Writers' Movement uh, or other uh, such spaces was getting to know each other. I mean, as you can imagine, there weren't really a lot of spaces in that period where they could do so, and um, and occasions like uh, uh, the congresses of the uh, writers' um, writers' association, the spaces like the and the Lotus um, magazine, a multilingual literary magazine of the Afro-Asian Writers Association, uh, or uh, uh, occasions like the uh, the lotus, the literary prize for Afro Asian writers literature. I mean, these were very rare and and uh, very important for creating a um, a, th- a sense of a shared project, uh, a shared this project for for these writers. I mean, at the same time, of course, it's important to acknowledge the the existence of multiple other internationalisms uh, with which the Afro-Asian Writers Association coexisted. You know, that's, on the one hand, the internationalism of the uh, Congress of Cultural Freedom, you know, the uh, CA sponsored uh, outfit that that, uh, (laughs) at one point subsidized the whole empire of literary magazines uh, that extended to Africa, Asia, Latin America. Uh, there was also literary Maoism. There were uh, various Pan Africanist and uh, Pan Latin Americanist initiatives uh, in the realm of literature and others. But uh, so so all these uh, competing literary internationalisms coexisted. Uh, and uh, but but really uh, uh, but really because the the Afro Asian Rights Association was one of the probably the most long lasting of these and one of the best resourced uh, that also came with the cultural capital of the Soviet state you know cultural capital much stronger obviously in the uh, in the sixties than in the eighties. It, it really played uh, an outsized role among these internationalisms uh, in in, a, in allowing in allowing writers from the three con from the two continents you know because Latin America was kind of uh, only marginally there uh, in allowing them to uh, to establish, what, what Ngugiwachi Ongo called the links that bind us. So if uh, a Kenyan publishing house uh, was, was able to print an Indian novel during that period, it is precisely uh, because of this effort of, of, uh, of the afro Writers Association and its multiple translation initiatives.
1: Thank you, Rosan. Your mentioning of this um, this quote, the links that bind us, actually takes me to my next question, which is about the links that bound, uh, you know, African and Asian writers together, and also with the Soviet Union, Um, but not links that were created through an association or an institution, but links that were created um, within narrative devices themselves, right, within genres. Um, and, you know, the, the middle part of your book moves from the level of the institution and how the institutions were working in these translation projects, um, magazine projects, um, to to um, down to the level of the narrative, right? Um, you're really focusing in here on the themes and structures from the proletarian novel, um, which was first kind of born in the early 20th century. Um, you're focusing on how... Um, writers from Africa and Asia situated their stories, um, or, or kind of drew upon the tropes and the devices of the proletarian novel to uh, create national, um, you know, uh, to situate kind of their characters and their plots within the realm of the national, right, and also within the realm of the international. Um, and particularly, you focus on the 19th the ways that the um, the proletarian novel as a genre was reconfigured in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, Could you tell us first, uh, just perhaps describe what the proletarian novel itself was and how it became a model um, for third world writers um, in the mid-20th century, and then perhaps about how it was reconfigured? Um,
2: Uh, Yes, you really made a great point there that uh, the... Spread of the proletarian novel, uh, like wildfire, really across different national literatures, not only uh, Western European, but also uh, among uh, Third Worldist uh, writers. You know, often in the in the interwar era uh, that predated the formation of any formal. Uh, structures of internationalism like the Afro Asian Writers Association and of course uh, you know when we speak of uh, uh, the proletarian novel in the context of African Asian Latin American societies uh, of course we have to qualify that proletarianness in most of these societies that was really uh, a very uh, very minuscule population of the pro- proletarians were a minuscule part of the the population but but the uh, genre conventions um, of this novel uh, were really taken up by, by many of these struggling writers who are just like uh, uh, who, who, who were engaged in in nation building projects, but but often uh, and, and who were trying to articulate the bounds of, of the the nation, but were also, uh uh engaged in a broader world making you know I'm I'm taking this term from Adam Gachu's wonderful book uh, uh on world making after Empire uh and uh, because uh, it it wasn't really only nation building that decolonization decolonization am- amounted to but uh, but there were uh but these writers and intellectuals were not only trying to articulate the place of their nation in a wider wider world but also trying to change the very terms of the economic and political world system in which in which these nations were uh, finding themselves uh, so uh, and, and there were a number of specific uh, literary devices from the proletarian novel that whose adoption by by third world district I examine one is uh, one is imag- uh, foreign utopia the foreign utopia topus, others are um, railway and supply uh, supply chain narratives which which precisely do that wor- world of uh, of world making. And so when and so when the third world project came to an end, essentially along with the second world project. Um and, and the audience uh for for that kind of narrative disappeared uh, uh the the narrative devices <laughs> that came to dominate uh, uh, post-colonial fiction came to be very different I mean nowadays uh it's primarily narratives of migration you know narratives that are most uh, legible to the Western viewers, you know, because right now, uh, the you know is which is the situation that our our protagonists were trying to fight against right now, aesthetic values, uh, publications, etc. Once again, through the uh, through the former imperial metropoles of London, Paris, Berlin, New York, and so uh, it is. Uh, precisely these uh, these migration narratives that uh, that uh, this audience favors and uh, and those that, that I discussed in my book are uh, consigned to, to a kind of a historical relic.
1: or maybe a relic that is sometimes used even in the migration narratives as one of the characters you know reading a book from that time period and rediscovering yes. <laughs> rediscovering, uh, within kind of like a, you know, a narrative within a narrative, right? <laughs> um, you know, we've talked uh, a lot about the Soviet Republic of Letters. Um, and so I thought that perhaps now it's time to ask you some questions about film and cinema and the Soviet Union's sponsorship of cinematic internationalism. So, Rosen, you argue that the Soviet project for world cinema that took shape after World War II during the Khrushchev era was not grounded nearly as strongly in prior practices and structures from the interwar period, from the 1930s, which was um, such a, a formative time for the Soviet project for le- world literature. Can you tell us a little bit more about why there was l- less uh, less straightforward antecedents available um, in the realm of cinema, uh, in the, you know, stri- antecedents available to um, the Soviet cultural bureaucracies of the 1950s and 60s.
2: So film is really much more difficult as a medium to export than literature. I mean, maybe nowadays with uh, digital platforms, this is changing, but uh, uh, but uh, back in the day, in the almost of the 20th century, it was often the subject of interstate agreements, uh, uh, and so and and generally a much more cumbersome and expensive medium to to export. So uh, so often other states wouldn't uh, were simply uh, unhappy. Yeah, speaking of the. Uh, in the war period, with with Soviet cinematic experts, uh, making them very difficult. I mean, of course, there was no question of uh, screening uh, Eisenstein or Ziegavert in in Delhi or other colonial settings, <laughs> uh, and uh, and so uh, it was. Uh, and at the same time, a, uh, Maxim Gorky's mother. Uh, could circulate to Indian audiences in a way that uh, that uh, cinema cinema really couldn't. So, so that's uh, that's why I, I, you know, even even though they're uh, important and accidental antecedents in the interwar era um, of, of Soviet uh, engagements with uh, with Asian and Latin American cinemas. Uh, Still it was only after um, only after Stalin's death and the era of decolonization that a significant outreach could be could be made and and some of that uh, occurred through uh, through uh, spaces like the the Tashkent the Tashkent Film Festival that uh, that is the, the subject of the last uh, or the penultimate chapter of my my book.
1: Yeah, could you could you talk a little bit more about the Tashkent Film Festival? Um, it it does play such an important role in this um, the the project for world cinema that the Soviet Union was was trying to build right in the in the '60s and going on through the '70s. Um, you know, in the book you you borrow Mary Louise Pratt's term. Um, and theory of the contact zone. Um, You referenced the contact zone many times uh, in relation to the film festival to discuss the festival and perhaps um, describe it. Uh, What made the Tashkent Film Festival for you a contact zone? So perhaps you could tell us who came into contact uh, at the Tashkent Film Festival and um, how did power and race and culture figure into this zone of contact um, and the relations that formed there. So
2: one of the defining, uh, features of uh, Mary Louise Pratt's concept are inequalities, hierarchies, and, and struggle. So, uh, and we have a festival that, that brought together, uh, cinematic giants like, uh, India, Japan, I mean, the Soviet Union too, uh, but also countries that were in the process of making their first films. Uh, and really, anything in between. Uh, so, uh, similarly, um, the Tashkent Film Festival was was charged with so many different functions. You know, on the one hand, uh, it it meant to to construct a, um, a common anti colonial and this anti-Western space uh, for for filmmakers of. Uh, of the three continents, and, you know, it started as an Afro-Asian festival, but then Latin America was added uh, after the third, its third edition in 1974 or six, I forget. Uh, so uh, and, and there were so many different agendas that were being pursued, you know, on the one hand, this politically engaged struggle uh, in which uh, political filmmakers like Brinowski and like Zembeniusman were engaged in, and they would uh, meet at every festival uh, to articulate a common, theologies platform for cinema. Uh, but uh, of course, you know that was even even more difficult to to achieve than than. Uh, a similar platform in literature because uh, of the monopolies of Hollywood and Western film and, and the general state control uh, in in some uh, in some of the newly decolonized countries uh, that, that did not allow the screening of many, many uh, leftist films. So, so that was always a very aspirational project in which the Soviet Union also couldn't help that much because it, in itself it was a very in a very subordinate position vis-a-vis uh, even western european film let alone hollywood uh, at, at the time so so there were an and, uh, and so in addition to this political agenda there was also the um a purely the purely commercial consideration because uh, cinema to a much larger degree than the literature was in the realm of soviet cultural policy a source of revenue so selling soviet films and striking the deals that would sell soviet films uh to third world countries was was really one of the main functions of that uh, of that festival which had its own uh film market you know and, and seeing that uh, uh, and seeing the co- commercial films and the way uh, the Tashkent audience, for example, which pretty much everybody else loved, you know, but uh, but the Sen, in the Indian political filmmaker, you know, when he saw uh, the the Tajikian audience love for melodramatic Indian films, was really disgusted, you know, <laughs> and, and, and came to, you know, he declared. Uh, I don't remember exactly where the mentality of the broad masses has remained the same as before the Bolshevik Revolution. You know, which is really a very damning statement. You know, coming from a political filmmaker who uh, saw the lack of sheer lack of interest of this audience in films like like his own. Um,
1: but there was there interest within. I mean interest in works like Marnal Sen within the film fe- within the kind of the film festival itself but perhaps not in the kind of wider popular for the, from the wider popular audiences.
2: Uh, yes I'm afraid the, uh, the wider audience whether the festival you know whether the uh, Tashkent the, the audience most the of the festival, festival goers yes or, or the wider Soviet audience remained, Indifferent to to political uh, third cinema, which mm. which of course the Soviet uh, the Soviet cultural establishment had other reasons to be suspicious uh, suspicious of because of very often uh, these filmmakers were the wrong kind of leftists, whether Guevarists or Maoists, or or you name it, and many of them also have you know very proudly embraced you know and I'm speaking. Specifically, the uh, tradition within third cinema very proudly embraced the, the function of the role of guerrilla filmmaking filmmakers, whereas the Soviet state clearly preferred to deal with states.
1: Thank you for that um, that detailed explanation of why why the Soviet Union what, why this kind of project never really got off the ground. I mean, the the filmmakers yeah. that were coming to Tashkent had, had different political goals and different um, were coming from different political environments we're not um, you know their uh, their work was often as you, I think you use the term you know there's slight skepticism um, from the Soviet Union about about their work and their political projects um, you know it's it's really great how in your book you start you have one chapter that talks about these structures and these institutions how they were how they functioned on the ground how they functioned in rhetoric Um, And then you follow that up with a kind of a deep dive into genre. Um, And so just as you go from the Afro-Asian Writers Association into a discussion of the proletarian novel, so too you move from a discussion of the Tashkent Film Festival as an institution, as a contact zone, into a deep discussion um, and analysis of third cinema and solidarity documentary film. Um, So you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about, as as we wind this interview down, about this final chapter of your book, which is so rich. Um, it goes into the genre and the genealogy of the Soviet solidarity film. Could you give us a thumbnail sketch of the solidarity film genre as it emerged in the USSR, uh, first in the 1920s, and perhaps a little bit about how it evolved in the 30s? You know, what are its formal features? What subjects or tropes can we expect to see in in a solidarity film.
2: So solidarity film, I I try to uh, locate its its origins in in the Soviet documentary avant-garde of the of the nineteen twenties in films like Dziga Vertov's One Sixth of the World or Three Songs of Lenin, uh, and uh, at the time. Uh, there was a whole film studio Vostokino, which was dedicated to, to representations of non, of the non-European peoples of the Soviet Union and even beyond the Soviet Soviet boundaries. But uh, uh, much of that cultural production of Vostokino could be described as a culture film you know with uh, the ethnographic and often orientalistic, implications of this term Uh, so uh, solidarity film uh, is a genre I argued originated when Soviet filmmakers began to be assigned to shoot films of uh, civil wars or revolutionary processes first in China in 1927 then in in Ethiopia or Spain in the mid-30s then China again uh, in the late '30s, uh, and uh, during that period, uh, Roman Kermen, uh emerges as a leading figure alongside uh, the much better known Yariv uh, Sevens. Uh, so, so these are, uh, and and it is specifically in terms, of, you know, and and Roman Carmen is now uh, thought of as. Uh, paradigmatic Stalinist in the document in documentary film and because he was such a major figure in uh, in Soviet documentary film and for so long uh, filmmakers for a long time really did not know what to uh, sorry film scholars uh, did not want know what to do with him and especially you know his internationalist legacy which I've explained the reasons why why it couldn't be uh, uh, really popular in, in in contemporary Russia, you know. To mention, of, and of course that's even a legacy that's very hard to find because most of Kerman's films are um, and they're in some archives and completely unfindable to to a general uh, viewer. But uh, but some of the. Uh, but still, Carmen is uh, a heir to that uh, 1920s avant-garde and, and especially its, its, main, uh, its main defining feature, the, the montage, which uh, Carmen uses, you know, like, like Evans himself and like all these other uh, solidarity filmmakers from different parts of the world. They use montage very heavily to establish emotional connections uh, between viewers and and the film's subjects, uh, and to reconstruct uh, the various logics of the of the films themselves.
1: So, why does um, you know uh, Roman Car- Carmen play such an important role in in, in this chapter? I mean, you. you you, are you trying to you know he's perhaps seen as a stalinist are you trying to kind of um resuscitate kind of his uh, legacy here in a solidarity film um or perhaps just because he's not as well known as you mentioned as some of the other other uh, filmmakers um
2: I, th- I think nowadays his uh, his status is beginning to to change thanks to uh scholars of Soviet documentary film like Raisa uh, Sidinova who, uh, who uh, uh, reinvigorated interest in, in him uh, and, and Jeremy Hicks too but uh, uh, but really you know if you place uh, today Carmen in a uh, in a context like Yoris Evans uh, Chris Marker the the uh, Numerous uh, uh, Santiago Alvarez or other Cuban and Latin American filmmakers. Really, he's uh, uh, he completely, <laughs> he's uh, the least recognizable figure in, in film studies. Uh, and uh, and I think that's not entirely deserved and, and some, some of his films do stand the test of time. I mean, he's quite different from them in that, he had the backing of a Soviet state. I mean, Santiago Avaris also had, was working for for uh, Ika Ika, the the Cuban uh, and the Cuban film studio, and uh, and Marsha you know, His uh, I mean, she's really the main the main scholar of uh, that uh, that connection of Soviet and uh, Latin American film and her work does that much much better than i than I can, but uh, but what I've been trying to to suggest is that uh, um, the reason we uh, we focus today only on on the Latin uh, uh, on Latin American documentaries from third cinema or uh, or events or Carpen is that we don't really. Recognize the interconnections in their work, as they were clearly often uh, engaging and addressing each other uh, in in ways not appreciated by uh, by uh, scholarship until now.
1: Yeah, and just to you know, as a, just to jump off that a little bit, um, I was surprised reading. I, I don't know very much about um, third cinema or even uh, solidarity film. And so I was surprised, I mean, well, I wasn't surprised, but you you talk about how Latin American filmmakers, third cinema uh, pioneers themselves kind of really tried to distance themselves from the Soviet Union, right? Um, and you we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier in the interview, right? Gavarists were not necessarily seen or uh, sometimes seen as politically suspect. So, um, you know, you talk about how the filmmakers distanced themselves, but at the same time, um, there there were still these connections, right? Right. Um, and in mutual forms of influence, and you, you do such a great job of teasing that out uh, by focusing on on um, on actors like Carmen. Um, you know, our time together is unfortunately almost up, and I've already taken um, more of your time than I should have. So, in order to conclude the interview today, Rosan, I wanted to ask if you were left with any unanswered questions or any unexplored paths or intellectual paths at the end of this major book project, um, perhaps paths that you might want to pick up in the future. Um, could, you, could you talk about these unanswered questions, which I think every researcher is left with at the end of a project?
2: In mean, my case, probably more of them than than with most researchers, uh, because the, the book was finished somewhat prematurely, and, I, and there were so many leads I could have uh, and so many characters I could have spent much more time exploring. Uh, but it even, even, and, and in a sense, I'm still doing a little bit of that, but it would never be uh, quite an exhaustible project. Uh, but, but there is specifically a promise I made in the title that I couldn't, you know, it's from internationalism to post colonialism uh that I couldn't fully deliver on you know I only engaged it in in my epilogue and that's uh, my account of post-colonial studies is is a, uh, as a speci- precisely post-socialist project uh, so it uh, it was only possible I try to argue uh, as a field that you know in the 1990s uh Grew immensely, acquired positions and and visibility, uh, and became the main interlocutors of, uh, of uh, third world cult- uh, culture in in the West. Uh, but it was only possible with the end of the Soviet Union and the disappearance of Af- the Afro Asian Writers Association, disappearing uh, of so all these other third worldist uh, third worldist project, so, so I would really like to uh, focus on that observation, and, and uh, but, but that kind of writing is really made a little dif- difficult by the absence of a good post-1990 history of post-colonial studies. We have Robert Young's fantastic book, postcolonialism, a historical introduction, that, that deals with the pre uh origins of, of the feud, but but we don't have uh, really anything uh, equivalent for the post-Saean uh, moment, and that really made made my writing on this uh, m- much more difficult. You know, and the other, I mean, the main book-length project that I'm thinking of, of working eventually on is this, a uh, this media history on socialist internationalism. I mean, that's essentially a return to my dissertation, which did not quite get uh, get finished.
1: I see, I see. So are you also working, but are you also working on, you know, a, a post-Saidian history of uh, post-colonial studies or is that just... Um, it is... Uh, uh,
2: uh, it, uh, specifically, uh, I would be it. It will probably be an article, and not not more. But I would be trying to uh, to uh, contextualize colonial studies within the the ashes or ruins of, uh, of uh, this internationalism, where the Third World just Soviet, about which my book was about.
1: Lovely. No, I think that, 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 that really needs to be written. I, I think I, um, I might have mentioned to you in an email at some point how uh, when I was working on my master's, I read this left, uh, kind of left-leaning uh, English language journal published in Calcutta um, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, um, the editor of it, one Samar Sen, um, was a translator, right, in the Soviet Union. He spent time there in the 50s. And so this left-leaning um, publication, actually, um, I read an interview with uh, one of the major doyens of postcolonial studies, uh, Gayatri Spivak. And she talks about how formative this editor, Samar Sen, and his journal Frontier were for her understanding of Marxism and, and so forth, right? And so the connections, uh, I, I was very fascinated to see these connections in motion um so i'll be
2: to ask you about them
1: (laughs) so i'll be very excited to to read this article and um and and your second book project which you said you're kind of going to be returning to some of the themes of your dissertation that um that didn't didn't make it into this book um what what are some of those if you could just give our listeners an overview of what are some of the media projects um That you'll be looking at or sorry you said it's a media history you know what are some of the histories you'll be teasing out in that second book project?
2: Uh, I'm thinking of uh, specific uh, genres and cultural media that at different points uh, connected the left worldwide and and obviously in the 20th century the proletarian novel is the first among them and and looms uh, very large until its exhaustion in the uh, in the mid-20th century. Uh, and then uh, I'm looking at, at genres like singer-songwriter performance, which was the main uh, cultural form of the social movements of the 1960s in Latin America, Soviet, mm-hmm. the Soviet Bloc, or, or the West. Uh, and then I would be interested in other, uh, in other genres, which... Um, Also uh, played an important role for this uh, for these connections, like political documentary film, which uh, I think in this uh, post uh, post Soviet world uh, uh, emerged. This is really uh, something that many leftists, uh, a cultural text, common to many leftists worldwide. political uh, political theater and so on and, and so in each case I'm I'm asking what it is about the the specific medium that corresponded to the to the left of that of that moment and how they shaped each other the the, the medium and and the uh, left at, the, uh, at that specific moment
1: well it sounds so exciting. Um, I can't I wish you all the best of luck with this second massive project of yours and um, yeah I would like to thank you very much for taking so much time out of your day to speak with us um, speak to me and to our listeners about your your book and I hope to interview you once the second book is done and published. I hope to speak to you again to see um, how far your your intellectual work uh, has come at that point. Thank you so much. Um, for our listeners, we've been speaking to Dr. Rosen Jagalov from New York University. Rosen, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you, Jessica. But first, I'll have to interview you about your book.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. many years to come, Yes, <laughs> Thank you.
2: Thank you, Jessica. It was a pleasure.